So many things are converging in our church, and not the least of which is uh, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as I've been talking about. And we've been a church that's always continually focused on the Holy Spirit more and more as our as our years have gone on. And some of you probably heard the story of me uh, telling my story of I, I received a just call it what it is in Scripture a baptism of the Holy Spirit, an immersion in the Holy Spirit three weeks ago now, that was that was just beyond anything that I realized was possible to experience. And I shared some of that experience, and um, basically the, the Cliff Notes version was, um, I kind of was shaking, speaking in tongues, uh, kind of uncontrollably for about three days, and woke up a few nights doing that, <laughs> it wasn't me, you know, I had many words from God during that time, many, uh, I, I, I wrote my, actually I didn't write it, I had a dream of an Easter sermon. I was preaching an Easter sermon about the resurrection. I'm going to preach that sermon next week. That was in that time. I woke up, and it was just given to me. So I'm just going to tell you next week's going to be a good sermon, and I can say that without having a big head because I didn't write it, okay? I'm not kidding. And so uh, the Lord's just really been been moving in a mighty way, and it wasn't just me. Um, we went to a conference uh, three weeks ago, and, and a few dozen of our people went and had profound experiences, and uh, we had first Friday prayer night a few Fridays ago, and let me just tell you, the Holy Spirit was moving mightily in this place. People got delivered, set free, uh, supernaturally. Uh, we, we had, um, without, without like praying deliverance prayer, people got delivered, like it was pretty awesome. Uh, we had people being immersed in the Spirit that night, um, pretty significant healing happening. Uh, one of our worship leaders, Corey, was significantly healed uh, in her knees, that night, and uh, and was all fired up, and uh, I I talked to one young lady that was sitting right back there. So that's a that's a hotbed right back there. Yes, uh, and she said I prayed for her, and and she looked at me, and I got done, and she was just real stoic, and I I was expecting some interaction about the prayers I just prayed, and and she didn't want to talk about that. She's kind of like forget about. It. She's like I spoke in tongues uncontrollably for the first time tonight. I was like really. She's like yeah, I just burst out. She's like and then after that I fell on the floor. She's like, I don't even know why. It's just, just the power of God was just overwhelming her. And uh, man, I'm just telling you, God's moving. God's moving. And something that God spoke to me uh, three weeks ago over and over and over again is there is an outpouring coming, meaning an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as I've been praying into that, um, man, I've just been in this season of just wanting to pray, seek the heart of God, and press into that and see God move in a mighty way when when as I've prayed into what that means what is an outpouring I would I would call it it's a corporate move of the Holy Spirit some people would call it revival revival uh there's different definitions of revival when you talk about revival um in history and people have different definitions of revival um in fact this is uh Webster's dictionary uh definition um, what is revival? It's an instance of something becoming popular, active, or important again. It's a reawakening of re- religious fervor. Fervor. Pa- intense passion is what fervor says. You might not be aware, Romans twelve eleven says, Never be lacking in zeal, passion, but keep your spiritual fervor, Serving the Lord. Zeal is intense passion. The actual word in the Greek translated uh, fervor there means, it literally just means boiling hot and intense passion. Boiling hot. Scripture is telling us never be lacking in boiling hot, intense passion for the things of God. And one of the things that keeps us fresh like that is the Holy Spirit. And when you receive uh, you know, a baptism of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit. You know, um, it's not just like God does something and you're just going to be on fire the rest of your life. Paul says to Timothy, who had received that type of experience, you need to fan into flame the gift that was given to you when I laid my hands on you through a word of prophecy. So this is something we need to steward. This is something that we need to pray into. I like, this is the best definition of revival. It's the act of being revived. The act of being revived. What, is, what does it mean to be revived? 
to return. I looked up the definition to revive, to return to consciousness or life, to become active again, to restore from a depressed or inactive state, to return to consciousness or life. And so this is my definition of revival which we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks, kind of going to do a series on this. Next week, we'll just talk about the resurrection, and then after that, uh, we're going to talk about revival. This is my definition based on that. Revival is the act of the church, the people of God, returning to consciousness, a conscious awareness that God Almighty is real and moving in our midst, and thereby, we are returning to life. How does that, how does revival happen? I'll just tell you, and I'll be sharing this, a lot of this after uh, Easter. Every great revival in history, what we're really talking about is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, What you might call a corporate baptism of the Holy Spirit. Usually starts with one person, maybe a few, just a handful of people. And it spreads from there. And then eventually, like a whole body, a whole church, or a whole area or just a whole bunch of churches are being immersed, being moved by the Holy Spirit to come together, to seek the heart of God, to repent of sin. A baptism of fire, meaning the holiness of God. The, the, the Methodists, the Wesleyans used to call it sanctification. And when you study what they're talking about, they're talking about a baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism of fire that purifies your heart, circumcise your heart, refines you. You don't want to engage in the things of the world anymore, man. All you want to do is seek God, pray, read scripture, share your faith, worship the Lord. That's the fruit of that type of immersion, that type of baptism. And so we're going to be talking about becoming a house of revival. When you talk about becoming a house of revival, really, what you're talking about is becoming what I like to call a house of acts. A house of acts. What is a house of acts? I'm talking about the book of acts. And, and so many churches, the book of acts is our model of what a church should look like. A church community thriving, overflowing with life, very active, doing a lot of ministry, seeing God do a lot of things through that church body. I like how Smith Wigglesworth said it. He said the, the book of Acts, which by the way, the, that's, we just call it Acts. It's short for Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles. Um, and Smith Wigglesworth once said, um, the book of Acts is called Acts because the apostles acted. They did things, Right? But I've been challenged recently by God reading through the book of Acts. I read through the whole book of Acts in like one day this past week. Just like, and when you do that, when you do a large chunk of scripture, you see patterns. You see a pattern emerge. You see how God's moving in the, in the big picture, right? And I saw this pattern of the Holy Spirit moving over and over and over and over and over again. For example, uh, I mean, in the outpouring of the Spirit, The Spirit pours out. Peter stands up, preaches. 3,000 people get saved, right? It's amazing. Very next chapter, uh, they're going to the temple at time of prayer, it says. And it says Peter looks at this guy and is like, silver and gold I don't have. A beggar, homeless beggar type of guy, crippled. Silver and gold I don't have. But what I have I give to you, stand up in the name of Jesus. The guy's healed. They get arrested for this because the Pharisees are jealous. And they arrest Peter and John. And, And it says Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches to them about Jesus. He's like, salvation is found in, in no one else, and, and this is the truth, you know? And the guy who denied Jesus three times when, when he was confronted by a servant girl stands up, boldly confronts the authorities, the government who's trying to execute him and has just arrested him. But it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning it, the Holy Spirit just came on him, and he just, oh, he just couldn't help it. He was just like, oh, I just got to say this. You know, you keep reading, you see that Paul healed a a guy that was crippled from birth. But it says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to him, get up and walk, right? You're healed. Jesus is healing you. 
It's like when Paul looked at this guy, Paul wasn't thinking, you know, I think I might pray for him and see if God might heal him. No, Paul looked at him and the Holy Spirit's like, Paul, let me use your voice for a second. I'm going to heal you right now. The Holy Spirit's healing. He's filled with the Spirit. He couldn't help it. He just, oh, he just said it. And what I realized as I read through the book of Acts is I think whoever titled it, the scholars, you know, back probably in the 300s or something, around the Council of Nicene, somewhere around there, whoever titled the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, this is just my opinion, I think maybe they got the title wrong. And I can say that because that's not script. The title is not scripture. That's something just a guy put as a heading, right? I I like that we just call it Acts because it is a book of Acts, a lot of action. It's very action-packed. But who are the Acts of? I think it'd be better titled Acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts of the Holy Spirit through a dependent, yielded, prayerful people. That's what it means to be a house of acts. God wants his church. I believe this with all my heart. God wants the modern day church to look like the book of Acts. The book of Acts has 28 chapters. You could say we're living in Acts 29. It's been going on. It's been, the, the final chapter's been being written since Acts 28 left off. And so we're in Acts 29. I believe we should be living in such a way as a church that the things that happen in our church, the stories we tell, should we could insert it into, you know, the pages of Scripture, and it would fit. It would look normal. Oh, yeah, yeah, God does that stuff all the time. But think about how many churches, and maybe your church experience grown up, maybe your church experience up until now in life, what was the story? What, what are the stories that you've had in your life? Uh, well, we go and we sit and hear a guy preach and go home. I mean, if you put that in the book of Acts, wouldn't that seem weird? That seems kind of boring, right? That doesn't fit. One of these things is not like the other. One of, you know? But how about last week? The believers gathered. Words were given. Someone's leg was instantly healed in the church service last week. Whoa. I mean, if that was in the book of Acts, we'd be like, yeah, that fits. I mean, that's kind of tame. But it fits. Yeah. People get set free. Demons have been driven out. Yeah, that, that fits. God wants his church to be a house of Acts. And I think a mistake that a lot of modern churches, a lot of modern church leaders make is they, they sense that, they know that. And action, acting, gets a lot of press. You know, it makes things happen. And, you know, we can act in our own. We can do things, right? We can make some things happen, right? And I think a mistake a lot of church leaders make is they go, man, we should be a house of acts. We should see God moving. We, we, need, we need to be moving. We need to be acting. Absolutely. And so they read the book of Acts. They go, well, let's do what they did. And they just, they read it. They go, let's do what they did. And they just start acting. And they just start doing ministry. And they just start doing programs. And they just start doing services. And they just start feeding the poor. And they just start, they just start doing all these things. All this activity. And then before long, as the pattern goes in our modern American churches, we're doing all the activity, we get tired, we get exhausted, we get burnt out, we get dried up, and we realize we're doing a whole lot of activity, but on the inside, we feel barren and lifeless. Why is that? Why is that? And man, in light of my recent experience... In light of the last few weeks in our church, I feel like the Lord's given me new insight into why that is. And I think it's because we all want the action. We all want to see God move, so we get out there and we act and we do things. But we skip a very important step. We assume it's our action. We skip the step of what many 
great men and women of God have called waiting on God. Waiting on God. We say that in our modern culture like, um, well, just trusting God. I prayed about something. I'm waiting. Like Abraham waited for the child, right? Waiting on God. That's not what I mean. When I mean, when I say waiting on God, I mean going into a season of prayer where you are seeking the heart of God, where you're seeking his spirit poured out on you, his spirit poured out on your church in a mighty way. And through that outpouring, you are empowered. Through that outpouring, the spirit tells you what to do. Through that outpouring, the spirit issues callings and says, I want this person to do this. I want that person to do that. And if you look at the book of Acts, they were a house of Acts. They were a house of revival because they were a house of prayer. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today is how we are going to be a house of prayer. I believe the Lord's calling us into a special season of prayer, special season of prayer, but it's going to lay a foundation where we become a house of prayer, where prayer is second nature, prayer is what we do. When you read the book of Acts, there are two types of specific prayer that I want to highlight. Number one is what I would call the upper room type of prayer. What is upper room prayer? It says in Acts chapter 1, this is after Jesus ascended. Well, let me, let me read you the scripture and I'll, I'll unpack it for you. Acts chapter 1. I want to talk about upper room prayer. Acts chapter 1, starting verse 4. We're going to go to 14. It, say, it says, on one occasion while he, Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait For the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized. Again, the word just means immerse, totally immersed in the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him. They're like, oh, that's nice. Holy Spirit. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, good for the Holy Spirit. Hey, listen, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What do they mean? They were, Rome was ruling over them. They're like, oh, that Holy Spirit stuff? Yeah, that's great. Let's talk about politics. Does this mean, this Holy Spirit coming in power, does that mean that finally we're going to like get over Rome and we're going to be a free nation again? Notice where their focus is. Jesus says to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8. Shifting back the focus to to what I was saying about the Holy Spirit, you know, because it's really important. (laughs) But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Isn't that funny how they they were focused on the political, getting, getting Jesus in the political realm so they could be on top of the government now so often we're concerned with wanting to know things that are completely irrelevant and we seek God for all these answers and all these things about stuff we're seeing out in the world and out in the culture and that's part of the problem and that's why we need to enter an upper room season of prayer where we seek God's heart for God's heart we seek God for God And then God pours out his spirit and the spirit gives us God's perspective, God's direction. And it may have nothing to do with everything going on in the world. You can only act in what you have grace for. And so often we see things in the world and we want to start going after them and trying to fix them. And God's like, yeah, I'm not, that's not how I want to fix that. So you try to act in that, try to fix that in in your own way, then you just got yourself to help you with that. But when you seek the Lord through prayer, when he gives direction, he says, this is what I'm concerned about. This is what I want you to focus on. He gives you grace, Holy Spirit, power for those things. And that's like then when you go to say something or you go to do something, a thousand times 
the strength and the effect that it has because God's behind it. And when you speak it and when you step out in faith, God, the spirit starts moving in other people to align them to cause to happen what he's wanting to happen. And so Jesus says, listen, forget about the government right now. (laughs) Who cares? Yeah, one day that's all going to happen. Yeah, yeah, that's great. This Holy Spirit thing is what I want you to focus on right now. It's really important. And you're going to receive power. Verse 9, it says, after he said this, he was taken up before the very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white angels stood before, that's my insert right there, right? Stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Verse 12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, here's the upper room, okay? When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. We call it the upper room because it was just an upstairs room. Most Kind of like how you have a full finished basement, some of you, and it's like a giant wide open room, only it's below the house. This was a giant wide open room above the place where they were staying. Okay, given that we know later on, it says the believers had dwindled to only about 120. Remember, crowds of tens of thousands. Now we're down to 120. Isn't that interesting? Because when God's about to pour out his spirit in a mighty way, the enemy comes to persecute. Jesus was crucified and all the thousands of people were like, oh, never mind. (laughs) If we're going to die for this, we're out. But there were 120 who stayed faithful. Now think about 120 people. We have about 350, 375 seats in this room right now. That's maybe, that's maybe like if half, less than half of the seats were filled. This upper room was most likely about the size of this room or maybe even smaller. 120 people left. The faithful, the true disciples. Hmm preach. Mm. So many churches do their leadership by what they think will get people to come and keep them coming. And if that is the basis of leadership in the church, you will get off. You'll get off track. You'll get off course. Instead of your leadership being driven by the heart of God, the Holy Spirit leading, moving, directing, You'll be moved by the fear of man. And guys, I've sat in church leadership conferences where they say, but if we call sexual immorality, sexual immorality, if we actually spell it out for them, then those people that struggle with that, they won't like that and they won't come to church. See, then they won't hear the gospel. See, so we can't actually say, you know, if we talk about heaven and Hell, if we talk about hell, if we talk about eternal judgment for sin, how there is a judgment coming. And if you don't repent and trust Christ, you'll spend eternity in hell apart from him. See, if we talk about that, unsaved people, they they don't make them uncomfortable and they won't like that. And so we just won't talk about that in public in the church service. That Holy Spirit thing is kind of, you know, mystical and supernatural. And if we talk about that too much, it'll make those unchurched people feel weird and uncomfortable and they won't come. And so we won't talk about that. And then pretty soon, you're not talking about anything challenging. And then pretty soon, all you're doing is encouraging people. You're patting their bottoms. Hey, nothing's wrong with you. God loves you. He loves the way you are. So just keep coming. And it feels good. It feels good to be encouraged. And man, that's a big reason we gather. But I'm telling you, we need challenged. We need repentance more than anything. Change your thinking. Turn and live in the ways of God. How can you do that if the pastor, the leader, is not talking about it? And so, man, we need churches that are led not by people, 
led by the Holy Spirit. We need church leaderships that have an upper room. And so I'm telling you, we're coming into a season of prayer where we become a house of prayer. And I already know what's going to happen out of this. Out of those prayer times, leadership is going to come. Ideas are going to come out of the prayer closet. That's how, honestly, that's how our church has always been led. But God's calling us in a special way to not just be a leadership at prayer, but to be a community at prayer. Let me read the rest of the scripture. It says, they went to the upstairs room, the upper room, where they were staying. It says those present were, and it names the the apostles, but we know a few verses later it says there was 120. So it was the apostles and, you know, 110 or so others. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Now we know that it was for about 10 days. And after 10 days of constantly getting together in this upper room, praying and seeking the heart of God, that's when Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit pours out in a mighty, extravagant, powerful way. After 10 days of getting together every single day for prayer. Now here's what modern church leaders do. And I've been guilty of this. Oh, they got together for 10 days. Hey, 10 days of prayer leading up to Pentecost. You guys remember when we did that a few years ago? It was actually 2020. We, we met outside because it was COVID, right? 10 days of prayer leading up to Pentecost. I might have even read that verse and like, yeah, 10 days of prayer. That's what we're doing. 10 days of prayer. Maybe we'll see a Pentecost happen, right? We didn't. There was no outpouring. And it occurred to me as I was reading that, that passage this week that they, Jesus didn't say, get together for 10 days. After 10 days of prayer, I'll pour out my spirit. He said, in a few days, this is going to happen. They had a promise, I will pour out my spirit. So they got together to pray. But there was no end date on that. You know, anybody ever do a Daniel fast? 21 days of prayer, 21 days of fasting, Daniel fast. Go read the story of Daniel. Daniel didn't say, he said for three weeks, I fasted and prayed. That's where we get the 21 days, Daniel fast, right? He had a breakthrough. An angel finally showed up. Might have been a theophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. It could have been Jesus himself. Shows up. He says, hey, since the first day you set your heart to seek God, I, God heard your prayer and I was sent, but I was detained by the prince of Persia. Spiritual warfare, prince of Persia being a demonic principality ruler over the area of Persia. Somehow this angel was detained. They fought for some days, finally shows up. Daniel is not saying, for, I, I said I'm going to fast for 21 days. And what do you know, on the 21st day, the angel showed up. No, he said, I'm going to fast and pray until I get a breakthrough. I don't care if it's 21 days. I don't care if it's 210 days. I don't care if it's 21 years. I'm going to do it until God moves. The apostles got together. Jesus gave us this promise. We're going to get together in this room. We're going to pray every single day until he comes, until the spirits poured out. He said a few days, so it's probably just going to be a few days, but Man, I'm telling you, after two or three days and he's not showing up, I would have started to get discouraged. When Jesus says a few days and it's been 10, you're going, where are you? Where are you? What's happening? But they didn't set a time. Let's do it for 10 days and see what happens. No, we are going to pray until something happens. God is wanting to teach us how to pray through to receive the breakthrough. And that's that's part of... Our problem, especially in America, where we're so lazy spiritually because our affluence distracts us. This has been wrecking my heart lately. We're so comfortable. And we pray, we're like, God, I need you. But not really, because I'll just take some depression meds and watch Netflix and that'll comfort me and I'll feel better till tomorrow morning. I'll feel kind of down again. But I'll just do it the next day because I have all this entertainment and all this food and all this alcohol, this drink, all this Drugs to comfort me. And the reality is you're miserable. But you keep medicating with sex, drugs, alcohol, entertainment. 
medicate, medicate, medicate. And so we really don't pray that much. We don't really do a whole lot. We don't really seek God a whole lot because we just go to the other things. And I'm telling you, America, Christianity as a whole is Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, go read it. I'm rich, I'm wealthy, we don't need a thing. God's moving our church, yeah, good music today, it's great. All right, let's go. Let's go think about other things all week while people are going to hell all around us. And God is looking for a people who are consecrated, set apart, who go, forget about the world. I've been crucified to it. I want Jesus, and I'm going to seek him in prayer. And that's what he's calling us to, church. So in the upper room, they prayed for 10 days. And let me just tell you, I don't believe during this time they prayed about reaching the lost. I don't believe during this time they prayed about the government being nicer to them or agreeing with their morals. I don't believe during this time they prayed about their schools being more aligned with God's word and not teaching things that aren't in alignment. I don't think they prayed about any of that during this 10 days. I don't believe during this time they asked for more financial provision. I think during this 10 days, they prayed about one thing and one thing alone. God, we want that Holy Spirit. And in reality, they're going, we don't even know what we're praying for. They don't even know what it looks like for the spirit to be poured out on a whole community in power. But I believe that's all they prayed about. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus promised them, I'm going to do this. And I think so many modern Christians would have this response. If Jesus showed up in your bedroom and said, hey, listen, in a few days, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit on you. It's going to be amazing. You're going to be empowered. You're going to be my witnesses. It's going to look like the book of Acts. I think so many modern Christians would go, cool. And they'd go back to normal life. And they'd go back to Netflix. And they'd go back to the the sports games. And they'd go back to the the video games. And they'd just distract themselves. It's like we feel like if God gives us a promise, we have no responsibility in bringing that promise to fruition. Jesus gave them a promise. And their response was, oh, awesome. Clear the schedules. We're not going to do anything but pray until this happens. That's called co-laboring with God. I believe we have a promise in scripture that Jesus wants to pour out his spirit on every believer, on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy in the last days. And so many modern Christians don't receive it because they don't seek him for it. They don't even ask for it. Well, I heard about Jesus. I said a prayer. I guess I'm going to heaven. I'm not sure, but I think I am. And so that's good enough. And I'll go to church once a week. And that's all I ever expect from God. And then you wonder why it's hard to share your faith. You wonder why, man, I hear cool stories about people having dreams and visions. God speaking to them. It never happens to me. Man, it never happens to me. Oh, I just suck. Man, I don't even know if God's real. Oh, this is all stupid. Oh, I'm going to leave it. When the reality is you've never asked him to do it for you. Well, I asked him one time. One time? That's it? I wonder how many times they asked him in those 10 days. You ever try to sit and pray for an hour? You know what happens to me? I start saying the same things over and over again. After about an hour. It's not a bad thing. I wonder how many times they asked for the outpouring of the Spirit in 10 days. Over and over. God, just do it. God poured out. And God's preparing their hearts during that time. God knows what he's doing when he calls us to wait on him and to pray. So, have you learned to pray through until you get a breakthrough? You pray and you just keep praying until something happens. Until God moves. I know people who've prayed, 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 and God finally speaks to them and goes, I'm going to do this. You can stop asking now. And then they have peace. And they go, cool. It's in God's hands. He gave me a promise. He's going to do it. Either or. If God hasn't given you that word, you just keep praying. First, we must learn to wait upon God and seek him for his spirit and for his spirit's direction. That's the upper room type of prayer. But secondly, man, when you read the book of Acts, man, so many Christians, I know me in my younger days, especially, I've thought a lot about, man, Lord, why'd you wait till I'm 38, pushing 40 years old to start 
you know, pouring out your spirit in this way in my life? <laughs> I kind of knew the answer. He didn't have to, he's like, really? You're going to ask me that? I thought about myself as a younger man, say 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we were getting ready to start this church. I knew it was happening. We were planning on it, preparing for it. Why didn't he do it then? Because, man, if 10 years ago I had had an experience like Pentecost, spirit just blows up a community in power. I stand up, my first sermon, 3,000 people get saved. Do you know what my response most likely would have been? This is awesome. Thanks, God. I got it from here. I got the gift. I'll, I'll see you in heaven. And then I'd rush off in this cool experience in my power, in my gifting, even gifting of the Holy Spirit. And it wouldn't be long before I start getting frustrated because I'm doing God's will my way. Or maybe I am anointed. Maybe it keeps being successful. Successful. Maybe a lot of people keep coming. Maybe we keep seeing God do stuff. But you know, God... (laughs) God used a donkey in Scripture. I'm going to quote Rich Mullins, and so don't email me because I'm quoting Rich Mullins. But Rich Mullins was, I, I really looked up to him uh, and have looked up to him. He's gone to be with the Lord now. He's a Christian musician, um, a Christian rebel, man, but uh, really after the heart of God. And he once said, God used a donkey to speak to Balaam. And so he said, if God should ever use you to speak to people, if God should ever speak through you, to do mighty things in people's lives. You need not think too highly of yourself because God spoke to Balaam through his ass. It's in the KJV too, so don't email me. I'll pull the KJV on you. I will pull the KJV. I know how to thump a Bible when I need to. (laughs) Part of the reason God calls you to upper room prayer to seek an empowering of the Spirit is to purify your heart and your motives to get you ready to receive it. And after they received it, they didn't. The amazing thing is the rest of the book of Acts, they didn't just run around doing stuff. They would see God do something miraculous. And then what would they do? Get right back to prayer. Then God would be like, hey, during this prayer time, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work I've called them to. Okay, cool, lay hands. The Holy Spirit sends them out. Back to prayer. Then Peter's up on a roof, has a crazy vision. The Holy Spirit's like, three men are coming. Don't hesitate to go with them. When you go, do this, this, and this. Right? The Holy Spirit... Who's directing the show in the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit. Brian just talked about last week. Peter raises someone from the dead. Then he's right back into prayer. It says he became hungry and he sees the vision. He was still hungry for God, praying on a rooftop where no one else could see him, not doing ministry in public. And the Spirit gives a great vision. Then he goes goes and does that. The Spirit's poured out on Gentiles. Before he's done preaching the sermon, the fire falls and the Holy Spirit comes. What's Peter's response? Wow, that's great. Let's get these guys baptized. All right, see you later. Back to the prayer closet. Now what, Holy Spirit? Even once God moves in power, we're called to live a dependent life of prayer, seeking him every single day day in prayer and that's what God's calling us to we are going to be a house of prayer and that's the foundation of being a house of acts being a house of revival I believe God's calling us to sustained revival sustained revival continuously being aware of God's supernatural presence and through that awareness Sensing the Spirit's leading, hearing His voice, having dreams and visions, and doing what God, God, the Holy Spirit, leads us to do.
There's a lot of ideas. Not just doing every good idea. Only doing the God ideas. And we can't imagine the fruit that's coming out of this. That's what God's calling us to. It's what I would call being a presence-based ministry. Brother Lawrence practicing the presence. Just tuning into God's heart through prayer. Every single day. Every single moment. But he's calling us to be a community at prayer. Um, I want to read from this book as we close to hopefully inspire you. But before we do that, I just want to tell you something God laid on my heart. I talked to our staff about it, and we're going to start doing it. Not this week, but after Easter. After Easter. um, On Wednesdays, starting after Easter, we're going to open up the church building all day long to be a house of prayer. Um, We're going to open it up at 5 a.m., and someone's going to be here, me, (laughs) and whoever else wants to join me. And we're going to have an early morning prayer time in this room. If you want to come before work, if you want to, don't have to work, but get out of bed and come join us, that's great. Um, Then we're going to go work. (laughs) And about lunchtime, around noon, we're going to have another prayer time, most likely about an hour. And then we're going to go back to work. And then uh, in the evening, we're going to have another prayer time, probably around 5 o'clock. And so... Uh, and then we have a group meeting in here in the evenings, uh, actually open heaven, talking about gifts of the Spirit, tuning in the Spirit. And so this is something God's calling us to do. Um, and I just want to put that out there to you. If you uh, are able, if you live somewhat near this place, join us for at least an hour of prayer on a Wednesday. Come before work, come during your lunch hour, come at 5 p.m., if you can't make any of those times or you live really far away and it's a, it's, it's a long way to get here on Sundays, listen, fast your lunch on Wednesdays and pray for an hour at your, at your workplace. I only have a half an hour for, for, for lunch. Stop making an excuse in your spirit right now and make an effort. I'm not saying legalistic things, do this, do this, and if you can't, well, I can't do that. No, God's calling us to be a house of prayer and setting aside not just, I think we should all have daily times of prayer, Um, many people do, but this is an opportunity for us to be a community at prayer. And, and this Wednesday prayer time, it is about one thing and one thing alone, seeking the Lord's heart for the Lord. What do you want? Letting, it's a spirit led prayer time, asking God to pour out his spirit in our church, asking God really just to do that until he does that. And then after that, maybe we'll start praying about some other things. Because until that happens, I don't know how to explain it, guys. I just, we can't have any other focus until that happens. And we'll know it when it happens. There's an outpouring coming. We need to seek him for it. And uh, you'll know it when it happens. <laughs> It'll be, it's not just one person getting blessed. It's not just, oh, first Friday we had a cool night. There's some stories. Oh, man, I wish I would have come. No, you'll know it when it happens. And we need to seek God together as a body until we see his spirit poured out in a mighty, 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 mighty way. And then out of that, oh, man, river of life, river of ministry, river of fruit <laughs> is going to come. Every great revival in history has started and been sustained by prayer. There is a great revival. Um, I'll be talking about revivals after Easter, different great revivals in history, and what they looked like, how the Spirit moved. It's going to be really awesome. And, and some of the incredible, inspiring stories. There's a great revival in the ni- late 1940s, early 50s in Scotland in, called the Hebrides Islands, which are little islands just north of Scotland. Um, and... A friend of mine read this book, and I I heard he was reading it. I said, I want to read that because I've heard about that revival, and I want to know more about it. And this was written by a young lady named Mary uh, Morrison, I believe, at the time, who was saved in the revival. Her name's Mary Peckham now. She's married. 
Um, and she went through the whole island and got firsthand accounts, stories, and documented everything detailed, super detailed of like how this happened and what happened and how the spirit moved and all the cool stories. She went and found the people that they happened to, to, to know that this is an urban legend. This really happened. This guy was there, wrote it all down. A really powerful book. Um, I felt, I felt drawn to read it because uh, Scotland is my heritage. Kirk is Scottish, you know, and um, that's partly why I felt drawn to it. And when I read this book, it just inspired me. It was so powerful. This, these little group of islands, there's two main islands, Lewis and Barvis, and, um, and some others there, but those are the bigger ones. And um, in this whole group of islands, there's, it's only about 25,000 people. Now, that's about half the population of Brown County. The islands themselves are just maybe a little bit bigger than Brown County. Only 60 miles long, the big one there. So we're talking about small town, rural. And in these three or four years, God moved so powerfully. The Spirit, it was a work of the Spirit. And yes, there were meetings. And yes, there was one main preacher who, Duncan Campbell, who went around preaching at all these different churches and that God used in a mighty way. But God's spirit moved in such a powerful way that by the end of it, she said that no, when you would ask people, are you saved, are you saved, you couldn't find someone who, did not, who had not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. After it was all over, you know, um, historians say over 90% of the people on that island had accepted Christ. That's well over 20,000 out of 25,000 people. That's like in Brown County, 46,000 people, you know, like what, 40,000 of them are believers in Jesus and not just like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't really know him and I never go to church. No, I mean like radically transformed lives, encounters with the living God. And so many stories are told about the power of God moving and, and I'll share some of them at a later date, but there's this little chapter in the middle of this book And she's kind of chronicling why it happened. And Lewis is the main island. And so she, the the chapter's titled God's Choice, Lewis. And the subtitle is Prayer, Soul Travail. Soul Travail. And I just want to read you a few excerpts from this book and um, this chapter. She makes the point that there were very famously two old ladies who really interceded and helped bring this revival into fruition. They were two sisters, 84, 82 years old, had a little cottage. One of them was blind. One of them was bent over badly from scoliosis. They could not even get out and go to church. And so they just prayed. And they would start praying late at night around 10 p.m. And they said most nights they'd go to 3 or 4 a.m. just praying, praying for one thing alone, a move of God's spirit on their island. And that's well chronicled, but she makes the point in the book, this was a whole community at prayer. This community knew how to pray. And listen to what she writes about this community at prayer and this move of God. She said the remote Hibberdine Islands in 1949 were a seven-hour boat journey away from the northwesterly shores of Scotland, far away from industry and the progressive lifestyle of the big cities. She said, we had no organ, no guitars, no orchestra, no choir, no hymnal even. We could add to that, there are no organizations, no coffee mornings, no Awana programs, as many American churches have for their young people. No boys organizations, no girls organizations, no church staff, no seminars, no highly prized programs. Apart from the Sunday services, it has weekly prayer meeting and other spontaneous prayer meetings, which occur here and there. That's it. That's what they had at this time on this island, and that's all they did. Perhaps we should learn some basic spiritual principles. In churches with different needs in modern city life, various organizations will, of course, be needed. But the emphasis in Lewis is so obviously that of prayer, an activity and objective that supersedes all else. All that which we deem to be so very necessary for success in God's eyes may not be so necessary after In fact, these issues might well get in the way 
of better things. They could well be hindrances and not the necessities which we thought them to be. We can be so occupied with the trappings when God is waiting for the worship and adoration of our hearts. He is waiting to, for us to get to the place where we, he can put within us something of the burden which he bears for a lost humanity, which will then in turn drive us to our knees to intercede mightily in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are busy, busy, busy in the Lord's work, and Lewis prays. We have perhaps forgotten that the church in the New Testament prayed mightily and turned the world upside down. We have perhaps forgotten that the apostles said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, Acts 6 verse 4. Prayer was first and ministry next. We have perhaps forgotten that God calls us primarily to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek his face, to turn from our wicked ways of barren busy busyness, of prayerless service, of scant acknowledgement of divine help, of engineering our own plans, assuming that God will bless that which we in our cleverness have forged and established. Yes, we have our programs, necessary, necessary programs, and Lewis prays. We have our outings too, our parties, and some even have their barn dances, and Barvis prays. Jesus said, my house shall be called the house of prayer. Why have these places been so favored? She's talking about the great revival there. Why has the Lord been pleased to shower his blessing and reveal his presence in these remote parts? Why? Because they prayed. They prayed expectantly. They prayed persistently. They prayed wholeheartedly. They prayed believingly. They learned to pray As they prayed, the Holy Spirit taught them in their praying. They have come to learn the secret of pressing through into the courtroom of heaven and touching the throne. They have waited upon God, as Margaret McLeod so strikingly said of the Christians in Barvis area. It was a community at prayer. Because they have come to know the secret of humility, of seeking the Lord, of depending on him to work, of impatience opportunately laying hold of him, of passionately pleading with him, God heard from heaven and came to them, forgiving their sin and healing their land. They had known revival and they knew how it came. It came not by organizing, by programs, by game evenings, but by prayer. And they prayed. It came by soul travail and they travailed. Of course, God is sovereign in revival. He comes to us in his own time as he wills, but he has given us principles. He has left instructions for us to follow. He said, pray. He said, I will build the re- rebuild the ruined places and plant that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord, I will yet be, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, we have the classic verse where we are exhorted to humble ourselves, pray, seek God's face, turn from our wicked ways, and he will forgive us and heal our land. In Isaiah 64.1, we read, Oh, that thou would rend rend the heavens and that thou would come down and that the mountains might flow at thy presence. Yet it is not an easy thing to pray. There is a price to be paid, a price of curbed, Freedom of resolute concentration, of agonizing supplication. Prayer is the acid test of devotion. To stay in the presence of God and to wait upon him, bearing your soul to his searching gaze, costs everything. The one who prays must be transformed. Prayer must make him holier, purer, more Christ-like. Prayer is a purifying medium. In prayer, we get to know God. And the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits, Daniel 11.32. From the place of prayer, Samuel Chadwick's great words ring out. Men ablaze are invincible. Hell trembles when men kindle. We have the supreme example of the Lord Jesus as the one who prayed. He prayed in the night so that he might have undisturbed communion. He prayed before his public ministry, Luke chapter 3, before an evangelistic tour, Mark chapter 1, before choosing his 12 disciples, Luke chapter 6, before the great revelation of his death, Luke chapter 9, after the great achievement of feeding of the 5,000, John chapter 6, 
before the simplest affairs of life, Mark 14, verse 19. When he was busy, Luke 5, 15 and 16. When he was weary, Mark 6, 45 and 46. And in the last moments of his life, Luke 23, 34, the life of Jesus was a life of prayer. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we? Jesus withdrew to solitary places to pray. He needed the fenced spaces of silence. We too need habitual times of waiting upon God in quiet, where we enjoy sweet communion with him, where we're revived by his presence. We must force ourselves to be alone to pray. Let no excuse hinder your prayer time, for your real effectiveness depends on your communion with God. Become familiar with the courts of heaven. Prayer lifts the soul into heaven. It brings us into contact with eternity. It gives us vision of the invisible. It brings fragrance to the life, beauty to the face, heaven to earth. Those who look to him are radiant, Psalm 34, verse 5 says. Prayer is a transforming exercise. Here is the secret of the burning heart and the shining face. Get through the barriers of wandering thoughts and weary bodies and press on into the presence of God. This takes time, but time must be made. Many of us pray just enough to ease the conscious, but not enough to win any decided victory. We are playing at praying. We've put very little into it and therefore have received very little from it. Because of the demands and price of intercessory prayer, many do not enter its portals and consequently do not gain its benefits. But this is absolutely necessary if revival is to be expected and experienced. If the preacher knows little of this great subject, what will be the results? Should we not begin to give heed to this command to pray? Should we not call a halt to some of our activities and begin to seek the Lord? Has prayer been on the back burner in your fellowship? Does it take a prominent place or is it just something we do because we feel that as Christians we have to? Do you know anything of the heart cry for revival of soul travail? When last did you shed tears for the state of your country or for the lost? When last did you feel the pain-filled fellowship of the pierced hand. Abraham pled for Sodom, Genesis 18. Jacob wrestled in the night, Genesis 32. Moses stood in the breach for the nation of Israel, Exodus 32. Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, 36. Daniel prayed in the lion's den, Daniel chapter 6. And they prevailed. Jesus tells the parable of the importunate friend who asked for bread at midnight and whose request was granted because he persevered, Luke chapter 11. He also tells the parable of the unjust judge who responded to the widow's persistent plea for help, Luke chapter 18. What power there is in prevailing prayer. Pray on, pray on. As God teaches us to pray, no book on the subject, no sermons, no advice can substitute for the spirit as a teacher in prayer. It is in prayer that the Spirit cries out within us for souls to be one. We may sometimes have to pray through a brief period of unbelief. Don't lose heart in the battle. Over 90% of people in their little neck of the woods came to faith in Christ. Many miracles were poured out. Yes, there were meetings. Yes, there was preaching. But there are so many stories of people on the way to the meetings coming down with conviction and accepting Christ before they even got there. That's how powerful the Spirit was moving. I'm telling you, that is what America needs. That is what the world needs. We don't need to get together to pray for God to fix the government, for God to fix schools, for God to fix this and that. We need to pray for God to fix us to fix our hearts on him, and we just need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. I'll be talking about it after Easter, and I'm going to show you how every... (laughs) There have been times in in our nation's history, several times, where we were on the brink of collapse. And a move of God's spirit in power on a mass scale is really what brought us back from the brink of that disaster. 
in the first and second great awakenings. Go, go read about them. Start reading about revival history. That is what this world needs. That is what America needs. That's what we need. It's what this county needs, a move of God's spirit. Let's pray. <sighs> Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come right now and for fire to fall in these hearts to purify our motivations. God, I pray, you said you're issuing callings today. I pray that your spirit would ring out and issue callings into the prayer closet. So many are burdened for purpose. They want to have meaning and purpose, and they want you, it's their heart longing for you to call them out. But God, before you send us out, you got to call us in. Call us into the prayer closet. Call us into the secret place. Call us into communion with you. And in that place, God, don't let us leave there until we've been empowered, until your spirit has fallen in a mighty way. And we know that you're with us and we know that you're on us and that you're for us and that we've been given power to go out and do that which you're calling us to do. God, I pray that you would Stir up a hunger, a ravenous hunger for your Holy Spirit and for the things of God. I pray right now in the name of Jesus that everyone in our church and in this area would begin to lose their taste for the things of the world. They'd go try to watch the movies and the movies just aren't doing it for them anymore. They'd go try to watch the sports games and they'd realize the futility, how it just doesn't even matter. And their hearts would be drawn to purpose and they'd be drawn to hunger, and they'd read your word, and they would light up and go, this is it. This is what matters. God, call us together into the prayer closet, the upper room. And uh, God, I just look forward to seeing what you do as we become a people of prayer, as we become a house of prayer. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.